Hi guys, welcome to the Physio Plus Fitness Podcast. I've got Glenn uh, Robbins, as always, the co-host on the line. And also we've got Tony Corner, who's a shoulder specialist, consultant, surgeon. Um, loads to chat to him about. And we've already been chatting off air and I had to quickly press record because I was losing loads of uh, valuable info that we can get on. But um, but thank you for coming on the podcast, Tony. And then I just wanted to maybe get your your background and then we'll sort of he- we'll dive into all things shoulder. Okay, well, first of all, uh, chaps, many thanks, Lee, for inviting me on um, to talk about, obviously, a sort of a passion of mine, which which is shoulders. Um, so my sort of history, sort of briefly, I won't go on too long. Uh, born and bred in Liverpool, uh, came down to the big smoke in London and graduated from the rugby club called St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington, which is now part of the Imperial College School of Medicine. And after training in London, and and doing my specialist training in London, I was fortunate enough to be awarded the British Orthopaedic Association Travelling Fellowship. So I got to learn from four of the world's leading shoulder surgeons in Nice, Lyon, Milan and Bern. And and then I was also fortunate enough to do a fellowship for 12 months uh, with the now incumbent president of the British Elbow Shoulder Society, Steve Drew in Coventry. And, And that sort of set me up for my um, sort of consultant practice, uh, which is in Hertfordshire, and um, and that's sort of where I am really. And I'm just out and out dedicated shoulder and elbow specialist. And I think something that we'll come to sort of talk about later is that I think it's you know I think an appropriate sort of title is more shoulder specialist who can perform surgery if surgery is what is required, um, rather than shoulder surgeon. Otherwise, people always think they're just going to get an operation, which certainly isn't the case. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier as well. But yeah, but yeah I think to, today I wanted to sort of focus in maybe on, or we wanted to focus in on the shoulder. So mm. um, I guess first, first thing would be what the most common things you see are. Like what, you know, in, on a normal clinical day, what's the kind of classics that come in for you shoulder-wise? I think the sort of absolute classics is that sort of um, sort of spectrum of uh, sort of subacromial impingement that's not getting better, uh, going right through to the full spectrum of rotator cuff pathology, um, from rotator cuff tears to uh, even sort of arthropathy or cuff tear arthropathies. You know, you've got a complete journey of someone's shoulder there in terms of their rotator cuff pathology, and you've also got the classics of frozen shoulder, shoulder arthritis. And, you know, sports injuries, um, whether they be, so, you know, recurrent instability, and it doesn't have to be sports injuries. A lot of instability will also be quite subtle or, you know, the patients, you know, need sort of some reassurance that it's actually just a muscle patterning and the last person they need is someone like me. Um, I think, you know, sort of on a daily basis, my first sort of role really is just making sure we've got a clear diagnosis. Um, I see a lot of patients who... You know, I've had some work done, they've been doing a few exercises, etc., or they've seen their GP or they've seen whoever. Um, but if you ask them, you know, what what have you been told is wrong so far, they don't actually know. And everybody who walks through the door has been told you've got something wrong with your rotator cuff. Or they use words like it's the rotatory cuff or it's the it's the it's the potato bluff or something, and they can't remember it. But you know, they have just been told that that's what it is. And I think the first, you know, sort of aim is to just get clarity as to what is actually going on with the patient and put all the all the pieces of the jigsaw together from really the history, which is absolutely key. 
I think to a lesser extent, the examination findings. I mean, your history is just absolute gold. Um, you know, you're halfway there, really. Examination findings, just again, just trying to sort of build a bit of a body of evidence, you know, to sort of, you know, rule out a few things, and rule in some things, and then just choosing the appropriate investigations. And I think, you know, just getting a clear diagnosis, patients already start feeling better once they know this is your problem. Now, following on from that, uh, I can then talk them through essentially sort of all the treatment options, um, you know, from the sort of non-operative to operative. And I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, tell them what physio exercise to do. That's not my role. It'll be, look, you need to go and see a physio who will take good care of you. This is the information they need and they'll be able to, to take you through the rest. But it's sort of I think it's sort of important that I, I sort of reviewed my practice and in my private practice I only operate on one in six patients I see you know a lot of the time it's actually working out the diagnosis if we're going to do injections where are you going to put the injections is it the bursa is it the glenohumeral joint is it the AC joint or actually is it not the shoulder at all we're missing the problem that is actually the neck or there's something else going on, there's something more general, potentially rheumatological, etc. And I think that that's sort of, you know, bread and butter for me during my clinics, really. Perfect. And, and I think in terms of, you know, the, the treatments I start dishing out, which we can talk more about specific conditions later, I think, you know, one of the most sort of therapeutic treatment modalities I've got first of all is is reassurance um I'm, I'm in a fortunate position that you know patients feel you know they're coming to the hospital and they're seeing the consultant and you know and and they think oh you know i've had a scan and, and i've been told i've got a tear and tears a very emotive word you know and i and then when i actually say look you don't need to worry it's like millimeters it's partial you've probably had that for absolutely ages that's not really the problem. It's it's X, Y, or Z. And just putting context to the scans, which have actually given them a lot of fear um, and, and avoidance, you know, and they've stopped doing their gym work, they've, they've stopped doing their netball, their golf, whatever. And actually just reassuring them, no, you can stay active. You're not going to do more damage. Um, we just need to, you know, go back and with a bit of guidance with their physiotherapy, or if it's appropriate, some injections first, then that's fine. And that a lot of the time, you know, patients are over the moon with that. It's only the ones where you think, okay, we've exhausted non-operative measures. Okay, now I can go to the other options I can, I can, you know, offer and talk you through the pros and cons of them. Um, and then... I mean, even then, I'm still quite a sort of conservative surgeon, really. So, so, so that's my sort of, I would say, day to day in clinic, really. And then, and then, of course, you get more complicated cases, which may be second opinions, etc. Yeah, and the, uh, just going back to the diagnosis, I think there's been a lot of chat recently, both in social media and just in general with regards to diagnosing shoulder pain um, mm. and how poor the clinical tests can be in terms of the objective testing that we would do in orthopedic testing. So yeah. what what's your view on that? And are there any clusters? Obviously, we tend to use um, clusters to try and, you know, increase likelihood ratios and things of that nature. But ultimately, they're still quite poor in mm. or the research shows them to be not that great. So are yeah. there any specific conditions that you think 
certain orthopedic tests are better for are there ones that you avoid because you don't think there you know there's any clinical utility to i know as you said the history obviously is, is massively important but mm. are there special tests that you use and think are good or what what's your view on that well first of all i like to keep it sort of keep it simple keep it real and before patients or sorry before you know sort of clinicians like ourselves get caught up in this myriad of special tests which absolutely agree with you know the sensitivity specificity is very variable um i think there's just some key nuggets i think number one is and this goes you know along with the british over shoulder society guidelines for you know the sort of diagnosis of you know, subacromial pain um which is a you know a, a document from bess is you know is it the ac joint you know i mean quick you know is it tender yeah is your scarf cross arm test positive yeah so that's sort of you know quick and pretty reliable and if it is tender make sure you actually sort of palpate the contralateral AC joints because if you press on anyone's AC joint hard enough, it'll be uncomfortable. But is it, you know, discernibly, you know, more tender? You know, so so I, I think that that's one thing that, that lots of people sort of miss, that, you know, patients are, are automatically told, oh, you've got some sort of, you know, you've got rotator cuff pathology, you've got rotator cuff pain, but they've also got a lot of discomfort coming from a, you know, a symptomatic degenerate AC joint. Now, um, there's everybody over the age of 40 has got some sort of radiological degeneration of their ac joint you know that'll be on just about every single ultrasound report of anyone over the age of 40 or an mri the question is is the joint symptomatic you know have you got a well localized pain over the ac joint is the joint tender have you got a positive cross arm scarf test so i can know is that part of the problem is that one of the pieces of the jigsaw here okay so i think that's sort of you know pretty reliable the next thing i'm sort of i always make a big play about especially when i'm doing any teaching talks is checking patients external rotation um so that you can either rule in or rule out um certain pathology and again this just simply follows guidelines and i think the key is this lots of patients say oh look you know you can't have a frozen shoulder because look you know look, look how much forward flexion they've got look how much abduction they've got but then when you check their external rotation by really tucking their elbows into their side not letting their arm come into abduction and start rotating really keep it tucked in compared to the other side and you can see subtle changes and that's where if you're really critical looking at someone's external rotation you can start picking up those sort of you know early capsulitis that frozen shoulder that's just starting to develop maybe distinguish between that early capsulitis versus a, an impingement bursitis type problem you know which really in terms of the history will almost sound identical in the early phases so i think checking external rotation that if they've lost external rotation you're looking at a frozen shoulder capsulitis or you're looking at an arthritis of the glenohumeral joint not the ac joint but glenohumeral joint and we like to think there's some sort of clear history if someone's got a posterior dislocation of the shoulder. Um, so, so that's sort of nice and simple. And it's not a long list of differential diagnoses, which is great because those orthopods are not good at learning big long lists. And consequently, you can then use it that if someone's got well-preserved external rotation, you can then think, well, it's probably not a frozen shoulder, you know, at, at this point in time. It's probably not an arthritic shoulder we're going to go down the avenue of 
rotator cuff from you know sort of impingement syndrome rotator cuff pain you know tears bursitis that kind of spectrum um or you know calcific tendinopathies but to me a calcific tendinopathy while we mention it the history is just absolutely clear it's just that acute phase horrific pain where a lot of patients end up going to a and e they're in so much pain and that's an immediate alarm bell that, that there's some you know calcific you know, acute calcific tendonitis going on um and then a simple x-ray you know will, will just give you a clear diagnosis um and then you know the older a patient gets obviously the more likely an arthritic picture is going to sort of come into play or other pathology more potentially sinister conditions um and by the time you're over 70 or 80 well just about everyone's got a cuff tear it depends on you know whether their shoulder's compensated or not and what you need to sort of do for that and what the potential options are um so i think in terms of the getting back to the original question of um examination sort of sort of technique or findings you know look at that ac joint you know is it in or out external rotation helps guide you one way or the other in terms of sort of more rotator cuff type pathology or is it more frozen shoulder arthritis if it's instability the key's in the history it really is in the history and for me then yes we can do a sort of you know anterior apprehension tests or a job's relocation test and you're building up sort of a, a bit of a picture but it so much of it is, is is in the history there what i would do and i always do with the instabilities is to see look are their shoulders hypermobile can they hyper externally rotate and check their contralateral shoulder so they may have very mobile shoulders and then see are they generally hyperlax so i'm building a nice picture of the patient and of course you know always have a look around the back and you know you know you know as a surgeon we're no we're nowhere near as good as as you physios having a look at someone's scapula and what the scapula is doing but at least have some sort of idea that you know are you missing some some sort of you know scapular dyskinesia here is there something else going on which again you know red flag last thing they want is me fiddling around inside their shoulder so when it then comes to rotator cuff well you know empty can tests full can tests uh, you know you can go on all day and I don't do lots of them. I'll probably do sort of like one test per tendon because you just, I think, trying to build up a picture of, of a picture which you've already started to build up in your mind based on the history. And then you're then just looking for some other clues rather than hard evidence. I think the only hard evidence will be that if you've got clear weakness or for instance you know if a patient's got you know sort of you know complete you know lot you know they just simply cannot maintain an external rotated position and you know the infraspinatus is gone or they've clearly got subscap weakness etc so i think weakness is sort of quite clear but trying to work out where someone's pain is coming from i think that that's where all the tests you know show show their lack of sensitivity and specificity because we've got so many structures around the shoulder that can be pain generators it's difficult to, to pick which one. So I try not to get caught too much in doing lots and lots of tests for each individual tendon per se. Perfect. Yeah, and then we had a discussion before um, the call, which I don't necessarily want you to completely regurgitate because mm. obviously I, mm. I feel bad, but, um, but, but it was a really interesting, you know, what you said was really, really interesting about injections and about, um, you know, looking at, 
injections versus hydrodilatations, for example, for frozen shoulders. I think mm-hmm. I wonder if you can just touch on that again, Tony, because yeah. that was really, really interesting. I think I think first first of all, with injections, um, obviously you've got different schools of thought with injections and their potential risks and complications. And uh, you know, is, are you just masking the problem rather than actually treating the condition? And it, it, it it's a I think it's a complicated topic. But I think there's some relevant points here. Um, steroids can be very useful at treating patients' pain. It doesn't necessarily treat tendinopathy, but it will, can treat inflammation. So say, for instance, if someone has a tendinopathy of their rotator cuff and subacromial bursitis, and their bursitis is a significant pain generator, which is inhibiting them from doing their therapy um, adequately, then a subacromial injection, I think, is well worthwhile to help improve a patient's pain, which may be all they need, and the, the tendinopathy may have been there for, for ages, but it allows them a window of opportunity to be productive with the exercises and their rehabilitation. So injections can be very useful indeed. I think, in and that's in sort of rotator cuff disease. Obviously, you don't keep doing steroid injections. We know histologically you'll then start to weaken the tendons further and generate more problems. The other role of steroid injections is, say, you know, an elderly patient who you're not going to be doing a rotator cuff repair on, who's got, you know, sort of lots of inflammation there and they're really struggling. It'll buy them some time. They're happy. It's a simple, low-risk procedure to do to do the injection and make the patient happy without subjecting them to some dreadful operation. Okay. I think when it comes to frozen shoulder, I think steroid injections really come into their own there. Because if you can identify somebody who's got an early capsulitis and they're in that freezing phase, if you can pick that up and get the glenohumeral joint injected, I think that's great. You can really improve a patient's sort of quality of life there. You can take away the pain. You can enable them to really work with their therapist much more productively. And that's great to do. And the key for me is certainly encapsulitis. is what can we do to take away the patient's pain? Get rid of the pain. The patients can do their therapy. Now, in my practice, I get my patients in a radiologically guided um, glenohumeral joint injection. And that leads us into the wonderful world of, well, should you do a hydrodilatation as well? And there are many specialists who think hydrodilatation is absolutely fantastic. And there's others who think uh, a steroid injection alone is, is fantastic. And I think what's important to point out here is that a hydrodilatation is a guided steroid injection into the glenohumeral joint. And part of me wonders if in times gone by, when you know we were doing blind injections to the glenohumeral joint, how many were actually getting into the glenohumeral joint? Um, there are some studies which will say it's 50-50. There are some specialists in their hands who are very experienced who will say, no, 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 I get in nearly all the time and I'm sure I'm in. Well, well, that's great, but you're now getting a radiologically guided injection with a hydrodilatation, so you know that steroid's going into the right place. Now, when you see someone who's got a really truly frozen shoulder which is really solid they've got a very thickened contracted capsule and when occasionally we do an arthroscopic capsule release on some of these patients you get to see just how thick the capsule really is and i think to 
you know, to think that sort of dilating with saline, the shoulder joint is going to, you know, produce a nice circumferential rupture of the capsule. I, I just can't believe that. The pop the patients feel, and 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 the and the, the who I was injecting the saline sort of feels, it's just going to be the capsule popping at its weakest point, which may well be sort of at the rotator interval, but it'll just be popping it, you know, at that weakest point. How much that makes a difference? Who knows? I think the main, in my opinion, the main therapeutic part is the fact you're getting a good dose of steroid with its anti-inflammatory effect into the actual glenohumeral joints to try and alleviate that capsulitis. And we also know then longer term, what does steroid do? It helps soften tissues. You know, it's a tissue softener. Um, so, you know, you've then sort of also got something in the joint that you can then work with the therapist to try and get the range of movement back. So I think steroid injections are useful um, in the right context. And they can also be very useful, particularly if you've got a complicated patient who uh, the diagnosis is quite unclear and you want to do a diagnostic injection to a particular area, for example, the AC joint or the glenohumeral joint or the subacromial versa to try and establish what is the main pain generator. Oh, that's, I think there's so many nuggets that have come out in the last 10 minutes there, Tony. I mean, first of all, we spoke off air. Mm. Uh, first time I met you was, I think it well, it's somewhere in the region of 15 years ago. When yeah. You were, kind enough to come down to uh, the clinic in St Albans and do an in-service yeah. but one of the main things that stood out to me from that talk was um, the emphasis on external rotation in the examination and the subtle loss of external rotation picking up early um, frozen yeah. shoulders and that I'd, you know, I'd like to thank you for that I, I, I believe I picked up a few that I would have missed as a result of those subtle observations um, and also that kind of layering approach that you described I mean a uh, it was just reminding me of um, a similar approach around hip examination where you're, you're not just getting caught up in the old rotator cuff impingement test and looking at the, the scapula, but actually mm. looking at the AC joint, which maybe there's a bit more reliability with those tests and looking at the capsule with the external rotation to rule it in and out. Mm. Um, and then, you know, thirdly, I think my practice has changed a lot in the last sort of two years where if I do pick up those um, early capsulitis type presentations that I am a little bit swifter now to um, refer them for an early injection. And, you know, anecdotally, I've, I've seen really, really good results from, from doing that. And there does seem to be a bit of a window. I don't know if you know the evidence around this, but if they go through that real acute phase, it doesn't seem to be quite as yeah. um, effective, but I didn't know if you knew. Like, the, the yeah. You know, sort of anecdotally, you know, sort of over the years, you, you, you just see that if you get an injection in in the early stage with someone with a capsulitis, you know, if you get to pick them up, it, it's just fantastic. You know, the patients are just so much more happy. Um, they they do better with with their therapy. You know, you know, is it sort of stopping the actual sort of sort of histological process? Is it is the steroid sort of inhibiting the inflammation, the myofibroblast proliferation, the contracture of the capsule? Well, I think by the time you've actually got a well-set frozen shoulder with a lovely thickened capsule, it, it's almost like the ship has sailed a bit, really. And then and then the patients are either sort of having to sort of grin and bear it and and wait for the merry day. It's you know it gets better, or or as, or as the old textbooks in Codman's era 
will say humor the patient through the course of their disease for eventually they will get better <laughs> and you know or do we give it the more modern approach and say look you're struggling you're self-employed you can't move your arm um you know we can do a capsule release which i say to my patients is not a cure we're, we're treating the effect of of the contracture and all we're doing is putting you through a day case procedure to release the capsule release the straight jacket that your shoulder is in and then it's back to your therapist to help you really push on and really maintain it so that we'll just release the straight jacket we've not changed the actual disease process you know the, the actual histology itself and if patients are willing to you know to, to put themselves through through that day case procedure if the risks and benefits to them add up that then that's fine um but i think the best ones is when you get an early capsulitis get the injection on board early and you can really save them a lot of misery over the next couple of years and it, just going on to um surgery there tony do you think obviously as you say it's weighing up those you know benefits but versus cons um, mm. are there patients where you think surgery is not indicated or are there kind of common you know patients you'll speak to and you say look i don't think you should have surgery i just want to take a quick break in the podcast to thank our sponsors compex compex is a company that produces exceptional injury recovery tools our favorite myself and glenn is the electrical stimulation machine and both Glenn and myself use Compex with rehab patients, particularly post-op patients, to speed up recovery, increase muscle strength, and help with pain as well post-op. Um, if you'd like to check out the units or any other rehab tools from Compex, simply go across to www.compex.com and use the promo code HSPHYSIO for 20% off any products that you buy from them. Now back to the show. Yeah, I... I... So in the context of say frozen shoulder, you know, you, you get some patients, particularly sort of, you know, in the in the private sector who, who who want a cure and they just want it all to go away so they can get back on with their triathlon training, this, that and the other, and you know, la di da. The issue, and the first thing I say is, as I've just mentioned, I say to him it's not a cure. Okay, end of story. And of course, you've got to be in the right phase. You know, there's no point doing a capsule release in the early stage when, you know, when they're freezing. You know, a capsule release is for when someone's set and they're frozen. Um, all you're going to do is subject someone to an arthroscopy in the early stages of a, of a capsulitis and the disease will just continue to just progress and stiffen up and it will just be a complete, you know, um, waste of time. So they've got to be in the right phase okay which is the stiffness more than the pain phase um they've got to sort of really weigh up the sort of you know the pros and cons but i'm clear to them that it's not a cure you know lots of patients want the quick fix we live in a society where everything you know has got to be immediate and you know you want to be getting on with everything and i say i say to them first of all you know i talk more people out of it than than sort of into it really um and you know nearly always try an injection first and make sure they've really exhausted their therapy and it's only then later on after we've sort of had that conversation and they're still really struggling and they can't get anywhere and they're solid as a rock then we do something about it you know so um and that's in my sort of surgical practice and you know it it can be a very rewarding procedure in in the in that small minority of patients um who, who go forward for it you know it's a day case procedure we do it arthroscopically and um, the risks are, are very small 
patients only in a sling for a day or two until the interscaning block wears off. And then I say to them, I don't want you resting it in a sling. That's the last thing we want. We want you using it. We want you stretching it. We want you getting it going. Yeah. And are there, are there just out of interest, are there, are there any other surgeries you do where as a surgeon you're thinking, oh, I really want to avoid doing that unless I absolutely have to, like in terms of success rates where conditions where you think, do you know what, that doesn't generally do as well as other conditions? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that probably takes us nicely onto the wonderful world of rotator cuff tears. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, we, we could probably do the world's first six hour podcast just talking <laughs> about rotator cuff tears, you know, you know, if we wanted and, and we could, you know, send out for some food. But um, I think, you know, when it comes to rotator cuff tears and, you know, indications for surgery, it's it's important to pick the winners. Now, there will be the school of thought, particularly from the you know a lot of therapists out there will say you know look you know what's the point of doing a rotator cuff repair they all just re-tear anyway so what's the point in putting someone through a big operation a very lengthy recuperation period which is what i say to my patients i say it's you know my, my, my sort of stock words are it's a long you know pretty miserable recovery um but eventually you'll sort of be pretty glad you had it done. And it's it's in inverted commas an investment in your shoulder for this time next year, is what I often say. But we've got to be sort of careful in in, in that um, there is an ocean of rotator cuff tears out there in the community. And they certainly are not all coming in to see me in my shoulder clinic needing a repair. There's loads out there. The ones that are seeing me have already gone through that first phase where correctly they have been to see a physiotherapist who has worked with their shoulder trying to rehab their what, what cuff they've got. You know, even if you've got a large supraspinatus tear, you've got balanced force vectors of your subscapularis and your infraspinatus. You know, get that deltoid working over the top and see if you can get your shoulder compensated and functioning. And then, you know, if your pain's, you know, is not too bad, if functionally, you, you know, you're coping, well, great. The last thing you need is, is me operating on you. I'm seeing the patients who, who are not compensating, who are struggling. And it's not just pain, it's also weakness. And then we know, okay, all right, you, you, you've gone through that first door. Well, you know, is it worth doing an operation? You know, what are your chances of success? And again, there's many factors which play a part. Age, we know the more mature we are, the less likely it is that it's gonna heal. The size of the tear, how retracted the tear is, how much fatty atrophy there is of the musculature. You know, there's the, we've got all sorts of factors, you know, all the, you know, sort of biological factors, you know, um, you know, is it, you know, is the patient smoking, you know, f- you know, 50 silk cuts a day? You know, you know, you've got you've got all sorts of different factors playing a part. And all of these ingredients need to go into the pot to then start making the right decision, especially based on the evidence of how many rotator cuff repairs will retear if you look at them further down the line. Now, so I think the, the, the first point for, for me as a specialist is that if I'm going to operate on a rotator cuff tear is then basically picking the winners. And that's in the patient's interest, first of all, because as I've already said to them, it's a long, slow, miserable recovery. You're putting yourself through, you know, a big operation. 
you take yourself out of action from work and your recreation it's then putting pressure on the rest of your family because you're moping around with your arm in a sling um you know you've got all these factors to sort of take in and and i sort of you know i'll put this to them and i think it's useful to say it that way because i then also get to know that the patient really really wants something doing um that they're really engaged um and also that you're being very honest with them so they're not really you know um you know sort of brassed off at four weeks when when they're really sore and pretty stiff and pretty weak and still on painkillers what then we get into is that if i'm going to do it well okay can i do you know as good a repair as possible and okay yeah i've been doing rotator cuff repairs for many years now i teach on courses to on how to do rotator cuff repairs you know all all nice stuff but you're trying to do as technically good a job as possible but I think the most important part of the treatment process is actually in the clinic room and making the right decisions in the first place. Or as we say in surgery, first rule of surgery is know when not to operate. You know, second rule is if you're going to operate, know how to do it. And then thirdly, if you get into trouble, know how to get out of it. Okay. Um, and they're the sort of three rules. Now, what's exciting in the world of sort of rotator cuff surgery is that for many years now we've had you know great implants all these fancy anchors and stitches and whatnot but the problem has always been then the biology you know we can we can stitch a tendon back to where it should be but it's a pretty ropey bit of tendon and we know that where we're stitching it back onto there's sort of a, almost like a localized osteoporosis in the greater tuberosity footprint so we've not got you know one of, one of the toughest things to do in medicine is to get a tendon to heal back onto bone properly and there's been lots of work over years with sort of you know prp injections or platelet-rich fibrin um, sort of underneath in, in the interface of the tendon rotator cuff repair um, to the tuberosity footprint and and none of that sort of really sort of made much difference so we still had an issue with sort of biology um, there are some new technologies coming out now which show some sort of really sort of promising um but sort of exciting results which can um sort of reduce the risk of retail so there's a collagen patch um, which completely dissolves and integrates into the tendon and it is just made of collagen and there's a randomized trial uh which has been performed in spain where the results have been presented and will be published i think later this year which has shown a reduction in their group they had um, looking at medium to large size tears, they had a retail rate of about 26%. And it's actually gone down to, I think it was 6% or it's gone from 24 to 6%. Wow. So, so you think, okay, now that potentially, now, okay, obviously it's great to have more studies, but in the world of orthopedics, it, you know, there's been lots of case series. I mean, everything's loads of case series and there's not a huge amount of randomized controlled trials, but at least this is a randomized controlled trial, which which is sort of, you know, you know, raised the eyebrows and thought, wow, is this a potential? And that's a sort of, you know, an exciting development um, in terms of, you know, putting this sort of, you know, collagen implants on top of your repair, because that changes the conversation in terms of, well, you know, don't just have, not have a rotator cuff repair because you've got a very high risk of retear when there may be something now you know coming through which actually changes the conversation about that and that actually there is something we can do 
that reduces that retail rate very significantly. So I think it's exciting times in terms of surgery for a rotator cuff. Um, is is twenty six percent Tony? Sorry, is twenty six percent standard kind of failure yeah, rate? Yeah, I, I think I, I think I think that that would be sort of you know fairly fairly sort of standard really. Um, I mean, a lot of sort of retailers are not the same size as what they were beforehand, um, but and I think it can sort of vary. You know, there may be you know some patient population where it'll be higher, and when it's sort of higher, you then sort of question: Well, was it the right decision? You know, to do that, where you're pushing the boundaries too much by the, you know doing a repair on on your 72 year old, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, um, and there are other options with sort of allografts, etc., which again, like collagen implant work, is all sort of quite niche, and you're only doing these sort of on patients who, you know, sort of you know really sort of at the end of the line, re really you know sort of at that sort of fine edge at the end of the bell curve, who are coming to to see you know, um, especially like, you know, shoulder guys and girls like me who who can sort of, you know, talk them through what, what the options are. But fortunately, with rotator cuff tears and rotator cuff pathology, the vast majority of that ocean of pathology is actually out in our community, being treated in physiotherapy clinics very well indeed, keeping patients' shoulders compensated. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a tiny pool who, who end up sort of in my clinic where they're really wanting to have a chat about what the next options are. That's really exciting, though, isn't it? About the collagen patches. Yeah, That's, yeah, um, potentially, potentially, yeah. When when would that yeah. be kind of rolled out? If that is, um, so it it is. Um, so I, I've sort of been using it over the last year, and I enter my patients onto. We have a national date, sort of a national database for it, um, which is funded, so that. I, I can, you know, keep track of patients so I can be, you know, nice and transparent, which I think is very important with any new technology. It's been used in the States a lot um, over over a number of years now. Um, Buddy Savoir, who's um, a very famous sh shoulder surgeon um, in the States, has published a number of sort of papers on it. And there's also histological studies uh, which show that after three months, it's just sort of fully integrated. You can't really... You, you, you can't see it um and of course this is all well and good with case series etc you know it's low level evidence it's you know it's exciting but i think what's what's a sort of a, a, you know um a step forward is um miguel ruiz iban in uh, in in madrid has, has sort of got, got a randomized trial through and completed it and, and has shown a significant sort of reduction now are there other, you know, ideally, yeah, you want more randomised trials, you want more evidence, you want to build up the body of evidence. Um, and then, of course, in terms of it being sort of rolled out, in terms of the NHS particularly, of course, everything's going to come down to cost-benefit analysis and the sort of health economics of it. Um, but, you know, there are private patients who who are benefiting from it from it now. And it's been, it, it's been a, approved in the UK for over a year now. And is it is it expensive? Like, is the collagen yeah. patch itself expensive? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's 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 quite tasty. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and do they, do they have to um, kind of subsidise that part, or are the private insurers kind of? Uh, so a lot that? of the private insurers are covering it. Um, it's sort of it is part of the repair, and 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 they are covering it sort of at the moment. And I think it's obviously very useful to have a randomised controlled trial showing you know very encouraging results. 
whereas if you think a lot of sort of you know sort of treatments we actually we actually perform almost on a daily basis how many of them are being subjected to randomized controlled trials yeah um you know a lot of of what we do is based on what our mentors taught us based on case series based on our own experience and you know the more we can subject and question with randomized controlled trials and get and get evidence the better yeah, and I can't imagine there's any real um, negative implications or risks to mm. adding a collagen patch. No, so um, so a few years ago, um, and they're still being used now. So around the world, you've got the in-space balloon, which was literally a biodegradable balloon that would be inflated in the subacromial space, and these were for patients with uh, sort of you know large, massive, irreparable rotator cuff tears to try and push the humeral head back down to where it should be in line with the glenoid and the idea was that uh, you know you, your patient could then go back to the physiotherapist with the you know glenohumeral joint in line you've got a nice you know some balloon in the in the subacromial space and then you can rehab your deltoid and then the balloon will then ideally sort of dissolve and everything could be sort of happy problem is it doesn't really work <laughs> um, and we know that from a trial a, a randomized trial which um, came through from uh, Steve Drew's group at University Hospitals Coventry in Warwickshire and that was published earlier this year and you know so that's technology it you know it, it's, it's certainly not cheap um, arthroscopically technically you know it it's easy to perform um, you know I could get you guys to sort of come into theatre and do it sort of you know pretty quick as winking and, and you know and I'm not questioning your, your potential surgical skills Brent, but uh, you know it, you know, it, it, it's sort of easy to do. And then, you know, sort of a lot of people, they have been used a lot over the years, still used a lot in the States, um, mainland Europe. But we've got, you know, sort of a trial now, which thankfully has come through. Um, but, uh, you know, you know the, the sort of technology has been around for a long time. I think what's very interesting with the collagen patch is that certainly in terms of its use in the UK, which has only been over the last 12 months, we can at least benefit from some randomized trial evidence uh you know about to be published which has already been presented at a conference so i'm not sort of revealing anything here um which shows something exciting and it's actually you know we're, we're at the start of our journey in the uk with it and at least we're starting our journey with a bit of evidence mm. um on that note as well um i know a lot of the kind of athletes over in the states particularly they're going down to like south america and getting stem cell injections and stuff mm. like that. And a lot of clients have asked me about that. And mm. I know they're particularly um, pricey. Uh, mm. Is there is there much evidence for, for those as yet? Or Well, so fortunately, um, in the shoulders, uh, we've not sort of been exposed to sort of uh, the sort of a lot of the stem cell stuff. I think I think my hip and knee colleagues have, have had a lot of patients who will go to certain clinics, uh, sort of particularly in London, and they'll have stem cells and and they'll be you know caught up in this whole world of uh, inverted commas regenerative medicine close inverted commas and they've got you know sort of bone on bone knee arthritis you can almost hear their knee you know clicking as they're walking down the corridor and i think the idea that stem cells are going to go in there and and the patients mentally think they're going to regenerate their knee and be absolutely fine i think that's you know I think that that is 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 not quite right. 
um you know and you know is that just sort of making money or or, or, or you know we prop you know whoever's doing it profiting from patients looking for that obviously there's a spectrum and the patients may have very early stage disease and you know yeah you know potentially the whole stem cell um resistance medicine you know uh, market there could be doing some good but i think once someone's got sort of pretty fulminant arthritis uh, i think patients believe that it's going to you know reverse the signs of time and and, the, and their knee's going to be pristine when actually um it's probably not well well we know it's not um you know platelet-rich plasma injections are they regenerating cartilage well they're not regenerating cartilage i i think what's happening there is is, is that you're having you have an anti-inflammatory effect a sort of a biological anti-inflammatory effect which is giving patients um, a sort of a, a, a sort of a, a benefit in terms of how they how they are experiencing symptoms but it's not it's not generating new cartilage for them and particularly if you've got a sort of a grade four arthrosis of your articular surfaces you know, you, you're obviously looking at a surgery there. Now, fortunately, in the shoulder, shoulder arthritis is nowhere near as common as in as in the hip or knee. We've not got the forces going through it either. So, um, I've seen lots of patients who will come. You know, got a bit of mild pain. They've got you know pretty decent arthritis on on their X-rays, and they can really surprise you, and they can be functioning very well. Um, so, I. Uh, you know, fortunately, the, the number of shoulder placements we have to do compared to our hip and knee colleagues is very, very small. And I think because of that burden of arthritis, the, the sort of regenerative medicine um, sort of uh, sector hasn't really sort of come into play too much in, in the shoulder world. Um, the regenerative medicine is mainly about the rotator cuff and, you know, PRP injections or interstitial tears. Do you do a PRP injection into an interstitial tear or... On articular side of defect, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and again, I think I think very much the jury's out on that one. Very much. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, Tony, about um again off air about the the integration of because we talked about some sort of physio and 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 you know surgery and, and the integration of that. So I wonder if you might touch on, you know, what your yeah. thoughts are on that integration, how it how how you think it should work in a in a in a perfect world well what well, i think what i've sort of benefited from hugely in my consultant career is having what what i like to think is good good relationships you know with you know with all my therapists um who, who treat my patients and that you know uh, you know um, you know the door's always open for questions queries you know education and i see it that we've all got different skill sets you know we come from different backgrounds we've got different training but the, I think the crucial point is that we've got a shared patient and there shouldn't be a, sort of a feeling of, of us and them. And I'm sure that, you know, there are surgeons go, oh, physiotherapy, what's the point? And there's lots of physiotherapists who say, oh, you don't want surgery, it never works, you know. Um, and and neither's true. It's, you know, you've just got to, you, you, you've just got to work, work as a team. And if you work as a team, you know, you, you just get a better result for your patients. At the end of the day, we're in the happiness industry. And we, we want our patients to be happy. And whatever their goals are, and all patients have different expectations. Um, you know, 
if you take if you take someone's pain away and they're happy, you know, that they can get back to just sitting in the chair doing Sudoku, then that's fine. You know, if you've got a sort of, you know, you know, elite level triathlete, well they've got different expectations of, of, of where they're trying to get to. And you just got to work collaboratively, have good communication channels and just appreciate where each other's coming from. And I think as I sort of alluded to sort of at, at the start of the cast, I think the, the first pull to call for me is to just help establish what the diagnosis is and you know put my cards down on the table and say, right, this is what I think is going on. And then we can work at it and we can just talk through all the various options. And as I say, I don't try and tell them what physio exercises that, that they need to be doing. That's not my role. Um, my role is to say, no, I think it's not me you need. It's the physiotherapist you need. And now that we've got all this information and clarity, you know, we, we can work together and you know where I am. If you and your therapist think that you need to come back and see me, then that's fine. You know where I am. Um, and then if a patient needs an operation, I like to think certainly in my hands, um, you know, for the number of people I operate on compared to the number of people I see, if I think you need an operation, I, I do feel you need one. And then again, we've got to work as a team. Um, there's no point doing an operation and then just hoping the patient's going to do okay afterwards. You've got to work collaboratively with the therapists so that, you know, you, you're all you're all on side. And, you know, I just hope that as, as the years go on, um, whoever on either side of the fence um, doesn't want to engage or, or thinks that, you know, there's no role for surgery, surgery doesn't work, or that physio doesn't work, well, well neither is true. I think, you know, there are some physiotherapists who may have slightly, um, you know, uh, shall we say, uh, off mainstream treatment practices. There are surgeons who have got slightly off stream practices where we would go, hang on, I think you're going a bit left field there, you know, or so-and-so is doing such a thing. I think that's, mm, you wouldn't catch me doing that in my practice. And I'm sure you get lots of that, you know, in the physiotherapy world. But, I think the more we sort of come together and actually appreciate what 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 each of us do, then we get a we get a much better outcome from our, our you know our patients. And I think it's sort of quite clear. It's fascinating, you know, when you go to you know things like British Shoulder, Shoulder Society and and you see that you know all all you know all the good surgeons have got really good relationships, you know, with with, with their physios, and and that's great yeah definitely and there's something to be said that you know it's not a coincidence yeah yeah absolutely uh, i think yeah as you say i think any good you know clinician is going to have a team of people around them that they can call on that they can go to for various different things i think that's yeah you kind of preaching to the choir i think with me and glenn with that one but um yeah going back to the diagnosis i had a question what what's your how do you explain to patients who come in for example and they have imaging and they have stuff and it doesn't really correspond so so many over the years you have so many patients who have had scans and they, sh mm -hmm. they actually show nothing like it shows no particular structural pathology yeah. but yet they're sat there and they've got horrible shoulder pain like what's your go-to description of of that how do you explain yeah that so there's sort of, uh, as you sort of point out, there's sort of two scenarios where patients come in and, and they've had a load of scans, a load of imaging before, you know, being told what, and, and you know, the orders 
all the wrong way around okay and and then they fall into two camps they've either had a load of scans they've got a load of reports with lots of big fancy words that they've then been on the internet to try and look up and they're really scared you know they've been told they've got these partial tears they've got arthritis but it's at the ac joint and you're 65 okay and those patients in a way can be quite simple because you know a lot of it is for me to just demystify um debunk um a lot of their fears and just reassure and and, and my most you know therapeutic tool is just reassure that that is just normal normal age-related change unfortunately you know I'm, I'm of the age now where i can say well i think i've got that and and, and they immediately just sort of you know breathe a sigh of relief and um you know nearly every and and, and i often talk about what is our normal age-related findings on for example an mri scan it's a bit like you know if you have a spine mri scan you know who of the age of 50 has got a pristine lumbar spine mri scan you know no one there's always some so i always say to them we're going to see something okay it's about the correlation based on what you've told me in your history and what we've had having a rummage around your shoulder um with an examination and then using it to try and pick out the relevant bits and then patients normally sit back and they go fine okay what what are we looking at here and we then sort of build up a sort of a, a case for the prosecution for, for what the diagnosis is you know but you know as, as, as to what's for it and what's against it based on history examination and the investigations the ones who sort of have a normal scan um in a way if i've sent them for the scan i often have tried to sort of um sort of forewarn them that it may be normal so for example you know the classic sort of teenager um who's got instability recurrent subluxations etc etc and i said look we need to do a scan to just see there's no obvious structural abnormality because i can't afford to miss that okay and we'll all look rather silly but it may well be normal and that'll be great news because it means I don't need to start rummaging around inside your shoulder, do I? Yeah, okay. And they go, oh yeah, absolutely. So those ones are great if I'm in the fortunate position where I've seen them before and I can already sow the seed that um, it may well be normal. And that'll be reassuring, which is great. And that I can reassure the patient and say, look, now you know that I don't need to do anything. And you know, your physiotherapist is gonna get you better. The ones where they sort of had a normal scan and they sort of got pain, which is not an instability type sort of teenage case. Yes, they can be difficult. So you then go on to the next phase and think, well, if that's not what I was expecting, for example, if I was expecting some sort of tendinopathy, irritated cuff to ACJOA, I think, well, okay, the report says normal. Well, first thing I do is just check, well, who's done the report, um, you know, to make sure it's, it's someone I know and trust. And then I go through it with a fine tooth comb myself to make sure we're not missing something, you know, like a little paralabal cyst that could be, you know, in the spinal glenoid notch causing a suprascapular nerve entrapment, all these other little rare and more unusual things because I think, okay, we're at a crossroads here, but we need to be absolutely sure we're definitely not missing something. And then think outside the box, go back to basics and say, okay, is it the neck? Am I missing something here? 
is it the neck and i think that that's something that we should just always always drum in to people you know to, to all of us when we're assessing the shoulder could it be, just always ask yourself could it be the neck okay and you know and and it just saves you being caught out so then you know the, the next thing i'll be thinking well is it the neck or is there something more generalized going on here you know is there something more rheumatological which which could be causing it and then of course you've got your sort of you know psychosocial uh but sort of bio psychosocial sort of issues which you know i'm sure um you know everybody you know in your field is so much better at that than, than what we as surgeon specialists are but you know if if you've got someone who's got you know a hell of a lot of stress at work you know and they're smoking a lot they're drinking a lot they're not exercising all that kind of stuff now you know i'm i may not be the, the best person to to talk them through the whole biopsychosocial and it's probably somebody who needs a lot more time and regular discussion um so that's not really where i sort of fit in but i think what i try and do is to at least try and spot it if that could be a factor so i can at least sort of highlight it so if i send the patient back to their therapist um you can sort of read between the lines in in my communication that i think there's a more biopsychosocial element going on here um and and yeah you know i every now and again you do have a patient that once you've actually just sort of reassured them and you've taken away their anxiety and i'm fortunate because you know when they see me you know sort of you know all smart in clinic and it's you know tony corney's the big six foot four consultant and he's told me i'm finally i'm just in a fortunate position that you know if i say it's fine and reassure patients just register that and that's you know i'm just in a fortunate position to have that as a therapeutic tool and then sort of highlight that you know for 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 specialists you know on your side of the fence that you can then target you know in more sort of repeated discussions how to tackle the sort of you know anything that's sort of you know biopsychosocial which could be playing a role which i'm sure there's lots of um i'm just fortunate that sort of in my practice you guys are sort of you know great at sort of spotting that in the first place so fortunately i don't need to to, to deal with that sort of too much really yeah definitely and then in terms of like more obviously we talked about the classic things that can go on with shoulders are there sort of i don't want to say common rare things but are there are there sort of you know when we go through courses as physios looking at differential diagnosis there's things that often comes up so things like your parsonage turner your mm. paget schrotters you know things of that nature are yeah. there sort of weirder ones like that that you see not commonly, but like the ones that you would be thinking about with regards to differential diagnosis? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so you know, partially turner, you get a, a nice sort of you know steady stream of of, of partially turner sort of coming through, and sort of where I sort of sit, obviously, you know, is trying to reassure that that you know eventually things will improve, but but there are a small portion of patients who don't, and. Um, I'm sort of fortunate sort of where I am that I have a great relationship with my colleagues who are peripheral nerve injury specialists um, you know sort of people like Mike Fox and Tom Quick um, who are great guys and and then I, I can get them seen by them that you know if a patient's then fallen through, you know into that subgroup who are not getting better 
and then you know and they're really really struggling they need actually need to see one of the pni chaps in case anything needs to be done with the nerve or in terms of transfer work you see um and then yeah you know you, you'll get sort of you know you, you sort of label to her that wouldn't normally cause you any trouble per se but the patients develop quite a large paralabral cyst um that can cause trouble particularly if it's sort of you know pressing on the suprascapular nerve um and then arthroscopically we can go in and sort of decompress the cyst uh, repair the labrum to sort of shut the valve off and and, and patients do well from that so yeah it, it's nice to see some of the weird and wonderful stuff like that or or at least you know always have it in the back of your mind um i always used to you know you used to think sort of in in, in your nhs clinics that you know 90 percent of what's being seen once you change your registrar then then they could see you know the vast majority of it and it's fine that the key and where, where the consultant really you know sort of steps up to the plate is is in those sort of more unusual sort of cases and, and knowing what to do in those circumstances i think one thing which has sort of changed over the years now is what we do with sort of the more elderly arthritics and that um years ago we used to sort of struggle particularly with patients who had massive rotator cuff tears dreadful arthritis i.e cuff tear arthropathy and they used to be so you know in dreadful you know pain um, really really poor function and you know with the advent of different um, arthroplasty techniques we've got we've got options and if a patient wants to go through that we we can you know offer them you know you know pretty reliable good surgical solutions now which many years ago we sort of didn't have so i think a lot of us have an increased practice in in performing that kind of surgery such as reverse geometry shoulder replacements so, i think i think another thing that we um haven't touched on as well tony it would be good to just um mention is especially like someone like myself who's in private practice and quite often people come in and i'm the first person that they see um what are the more kind of you know sinister red flag type presentations that um you know would jump yeah. out that we need to be aware of that yeah you know young clinicians particularly might be listening to that i, th I think so anyone starting out you sort of classic red, red flags you know you're looking for you know sort of infection you know is you know anything that's warm swollen, <clears throat> you know hot to touch you know infection alarm bell ringing lumps and bumps tumors you know you know tumors tumors don't shrink they just sort of get bigger and they can get bigger at different rates and if something is if someone's got a swelling and particularly if it's getting bigger then you need to get some imaging yeah that, that needs a referral you need some imaging um so that you can diagnose exactly what that is and they are obviously more common you know with increasing age and then i think sort of red flags are sort of you know are, are the nerve issues and uh patients who have that sort of really horrible intractable pain going all the way down the arm um particularly in someone sort of who's elderly and their neck pain is absolutely awful like it's sort of like unusually bad that's a real red flag that and i've seen many patients who've had sort of metastatic disease in their cervical spines which has caused a vertebral collapse and and that's you know you, you know sort of urgent scan and straight off to the spine guys 
who, who have to sort of, you know, sort of stabilize that, oncologists, radiotherapy, etc. So um, I think we're within, you know, in our practice, we're very used to seeing, you know, the classic lateral arm pain, um, you know, the sort of impingement, rotator cuff, stiffness, capsulitis. But when, when, when a pain is sort of like completely out of proportion to what you think, going all the way down the arm with terrible pain in the neck, how, you know, scan the neck without a doubt. Always think, you know, it's just a good basic principle, think neck first. Mm. And it, this is more like a question for myself because um, I, I had a really interesting case uh, about a year ago where a chap presented with um, shoulder pain and, mm. and some stiffness. But when we used to bring him into certain ranges, he would get this kind of uncontrollable tremor. Mm. Um, and that was his kind of first sort of symptoms, really. But as it kind of progressed, he ended up getting a diagnosis of kind of early onset Parkinson's disease. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. And I'd never, I just wondered if you'd ever come across a similar yeah. Yeah. Kind of so, case. So it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's fascinating, actually. Um, shoulder pain is a pretty is actually a surprisingly common presentation for Parkinson's um, in terms of sort of tremor, as you've described, um, or a sort of uh, sort of a stiffness, um, sort of stiffness and pain where you think, oh, it's probably frozen. But actually, that you know, it, it then transpires later on that the patients are actually developing a bit of rigidity associated with their Parkinson's. And it's then you, you notice their sort of tremor in their hands sort of etc and um there are some studies which uh, i think looked at parkinson's disease and that you know 15 percent of people who uh, present with uh, shoulder issues uh, who are then sort of diagnosed with with their parkinson's wow. and um i've actually given a talk to our local parkinson's society about uh, about all this um so yeah it's you know again and that falls into that you know lovely sort of category of, of the sort of the weird and wonderful which you've just got to be alert about and what and what keeps us all on our toes um just what 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 i think makes um what you and i do each day interesting because you've always got to be on your toes as to what's you know next in the door and what could, could be going on oh, that's fascinating. go on go on God, yeah, I was saying because I reflected on that for a long time, thinking, could I have picked it up sooner? And you know, he was he was very young; he was like early forties, no other kind of obvious neurological symptoms. So, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm I'm glad I asked you that. Yeah, thank no, you. No, <laughs> no, no, excellent pickup, mate. Well done, excellent pickup. And then you said, um, Tony, before about like certain myths and misconceptions. I just wondered if you had any like particular. Um, ones that kind of stand out to you in terms of myths misconceptions about shoulder surgery shoulder pain injuries things that you think you wish people knew more about or that or that um the common things that come up that you have to talk debunk as it were i, I think um one thing on sort of rotator cuff tears when we talk rotator cuff tears um we're obviously talking about the long-standing chronic degenerative rotator cuff tears but there is a subgroup, and the subgroup is the traumatic rotator cuff tear. And I think that that's something that just needs, you know, a little bit of focus on. When we say a traumatic tear, we're not necessarily talking about someone who's, you know, come off their motorbike at speed and, and, and got a tear. 
it's also someone who may be, you know, sort of in their 50s, they've got an underlying degenerate tendon, they've probably already got a bit of a partial tear anyway, but their, their tendon is on its last legs. They've had no shoulder issues at all, normal function, no restriction, doing everything they want to do, and they've then had a a, a, a minor trauma freezing. You know, I've had patients where they've just like been slipped, slipped on the banister, uh, slipped on the stairs, grabbed the banister, so they've had some little minor traction to the shoulder. But that's been enough, and they said, I felt something go. They have then presented to clinic with extremely limited forward flexion and, and abduction, okay? Really limited. It, and, and they've torn, they've actually sustained a large tear through an underlying degenerate tendon and their shoulders completely decompensated. So we're not just talking about a, a little, you know, half centimeter full thickness tear of the leading edge of supraspinatus. We're talking about, you know, they really can't elevate their arm at all. It, it's gone. And that's a traumatic tear through an underlying degenerate tendon. And the key is to pick them up early and not say, oh, you'll be fine. You know, we're, we're gonna get you going on a yellow TheraBand and everything's all gonna be tickety-boo and then Three months down the line, you know, they, all their functions, elbow flexion to get their hands to their face, they're hardly using their shoulder, it's completely weak, and they've been sitting on a traumatic tear. Now, what happens with those traumatic tears is that they retract quickly. So three months down the line, if you get in to try and repair it, it's already retracted, and some of them have retracted too far, you can't actually get it repaired, and that's a heart sink because you've got someone who's very active in their 50s who previously had a very well-functioning shoulder. And if you'd have just done the repair at the time, then they do really well. They are almost your best set of patients. They do great. And, you know, I've had some of my juniors who've had family members who, who, who suffered exactly that kind of injury. And, you know, it, it, it was just a great, great Lima Oscar as my bosses used to say great learning opportunity and and they said oh you know you know boss I've got this and I've got them in we've got it fixed and they're absolutely fine and they're great it's and, and the thing is if you miss them and you leave them thinking they're going to get better and they don't you've missed the opportunity of getting the repair potentially and they then fall into the trap that they are now a young person I still call them young with an irreparable rotator cuff tear and they're in pain with really poor function and that's when you're really into sort of niche options then really niche options in terms of you know transfers allographs all that kind of stuff which could have all been avoided now let's put it in perspective these cases are a very 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 small proportion of patients who present to your clinic or my clinic with rotator cuff tendon tears okay these are traumatic tears but just to be aware that if someone's got really poor function following some sort of incident like that get them scanned get them scanned quickly don't sit on them um, because they may benefit from early intervention it's a bit like if i would say if if you had a knee patient who'd torn their quads tendon and and they couldn't extend their knee at all or just a little bit you know, probably giving it a bit of a fling, and you say you wouldn't. Would you say to them, "Oh, don't worry. Um, well, you know, we're going to get you doing some quads exercises. Really going to fire up that quads and, and and see how you go." And then three months later, refer it to an, a knee surgeon to do the quads repair. You wouldn't, would you? 
So why would you do that with the rotator cuff in someone who, who before that traumatic incident had a normal functioning shoulder and now has a large tear and has massively defunctioned? Do you see? Yeah, it makes total sense. So, so that's w one of the things, you know, which, uh, you know, when they're missed, it, it just gives us, us surgeons sort of, a, you know, it's just tears in our eyes when we're operating and we look and think, oh, no, it's just not repairable. It's gone. You know, um, so I would say that that's probably the, the one of the biggest things for me, really. And and then, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, in terms of sort of, you know, uh, dispelling sort of, you know, myths or, or whatnot. Um, I, as I said before, I think hopefully lots of physios will realise that there are surgeons like me who don't operate on everybody who walks through the door. Uh, you know, most of us don't, uh, you know, uh, so I probably prefer to be, you know, known as, you know, you know, TC, the shoulder specialist, who can talk you through all the options. But if surgery is the option that's the right thing for you, well, you know, I've, I, you know, I've got the tools to do that. Mm. and and you know and then you know hopefully the more more of us learn that actually if we all just work together and work as a team um your life so you will get happier patients you're happy i'm happy we're all happy and a lot less stressed amazing yeah and then my my final question i wanted to ask just in terms of obviously you mentioned the collagen patch which sounds pretty exciting in terms of going forwards but is there anything else on the horizon that you think oh this is exciting in terms of the next few years next like developments in terms of anything shoulder specific in terms of surgery and, and that sort of stuff yeah so i mean in in terms of rotator cuff it's you know the focus now is on biology and improving the biology which we've already talked about there are other options and mm -hmm. techniques are developing in terms of how we you know introduce sort of you know if we have to do salvage procedures where we're using an allograft to try and reinforce a repair um, so more evidence will start coming out uh, about that. I think and uh, the sort of exciting time in terms of technology is in arthroplasty work. Um, you know, when I started my you know consulting career, we weren't doing you know computer templates. Whereas now, for all my shoulder replacements, um, we we get a CT scan, which I upload into a computer program. So. I can actually run through the operation in my mind, run through what implants, put different implants on. So I start the operation pretty much knowing, you know, a very good idea of what I'm going to do um, and what I'm going to put in. And we've now got patient specific. So in really complicated cases, we can get specific instruments made. And there's also the sort of, you know, virtual reality is coming to the operating theatre in the EU, whereby we have what's called the HoloLens um sort of goggles so that you can operate and then beside the patient there will be sort of you know your, your drop down menus look at the ct scan look at various bits whilst you're then also looking at the real patient in front of you and all that technology you know it's there it's all being fine-tuned and it's it's all gradually being rolled out it's a case of you know proving that it is sort of beneficial but but that's where the technology in terms of um, uh, computers and and it, it is going, and that's mainly in the in the world of shoulder arthroplasty. Okay, amazing. Exciting times. See, I, I told you, I told you, the future shoulders, mate. <laughs> be robots doing all the surgeries in about fifty years time. Well, that'll be all right. I'm thinking I'm retired by then. <laughs> Did you have any other questions, Glenn? 
No, no, I've, I actually really, really enjoyed the podcast, Tony. Thank yeah. you for coming on. That. No, absolute pleasure, Chef. Thank you very much indeed for the invice. Really I know, I know it. There's probably loads more we could discuss, but I think um, I've taken up enough of your time and it's been amazing. And, and I think so many nuggets in there are valuable info for, for physios. So, yeah, just thank you once again, Tony, and, and hopefully yeah. everyone's enjoyed it. Absolute pleasure. And if you ever want, want to do TC Shoulders Part 2, we, you know, have me back is, on any time, Chef. Is there any, uh, just before we finish, social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, websites, anything like that? that um, you wanna... So, um i'm sort of uh, sort of, I'm, I'm not particularly sort of great on the old sort of twitter instagram un unless you want to catch up on my family holidays um but, <laughs> but but i do have a website and um i wrote my website sort of aimed really sort of at patients in sort of patient friendly language so when patients sort of forget half of what you've said in clinic they can go back home have a copper look up the website and just help reinforce what we've sort of been discussing. And that's sort of Tony, you know, www.tonycorner.com or tpshoulderelbowclinic.com. But if you just put tonycorner.com, that'll take you to the website. And, and on there, I've just got basic information in terms of, you know, where I'm at, if anyone wants to chat, um, what basic shoulder conditions are, the operations and i think uh, i think that the most the most used part of the website is my rehab guidelines um page so all the therapists sort of um you know i've treated any of my patients uh, post-operatively can just go on the website and then click on the pdf and just download a pdf which gives them guidelines it's not hard and fast rules but just some sort of structure as to you know how we like to do things yeah, I, I yeah. won't. I won't ask too many questions about that. But um, that was one thing I was thinking about was kind of surgical protocols, and I think um, it's nice to have. Like, I think it's always nice to know what a surgeon's preference is in terms of their rehab, yeah. because that is different. Like, it, you know, there are subtle changes or subtle differences with different different surgeons. So I think um, having a resource like that is uh, is really great. So we'll yeah, yeah we'll definitely link the website Tony on the on the show. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, TonyCorner.com. And and with the and with the rehab guidelines, it is what it says. They are guidelines. They are a guide, and you know patients can always be pushed on. And if there are specific patients in in, in my care that there there's something a little bit more specific, um, I, I'll always sort of mention that in in my letters. And what I always do, say for instance, with instability cases and who've had stabilizations, I always like to document what a safe zone is, so that you know. It's absolutely fine to start rotating them out to a certain a certain degree. Yeah. And I think that's all really helpful, especially in that early phase. Definitely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Brilliant. Well, thank you once again. No, absolute yeah. pleasure, chaps. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. If you did, please go over to iTunes and give us a five-star review and leave a few comments. It really helps us improve the show and it really helps the show get out to more physios and, and fitness enthusiasts out there who want to listen to the content and enables us to get more guests on the show. So I would really, really love it if you could do that. It really helps me and Glenn out and I will see you on the next one.